My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. your street lies layers and layers of hidden secrets like an earthen cake with a frosting layer of propaganda on top the earth is a complex combination of elements and primordial forces churning and burning bubbling to the surface a history lost to time now being uncovered just search the term old world and witness the resurgence in interest from amateur to expert and inevitably trained architects like today's guest who have taken up the task of piecing together this subterrestrial puzzle. Matthew Smith joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Matthew Smith. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon.com, Rockfin.com, or Ko-Fi.com. There you can find bonus content and you help keep this show on the air two or more days a week. Where it starts out is with the old railroad riders in the in the mid 1800s, and they used to get really sick. And the list of symptoms looks a lot like the symptoms that we've been seeing show up in the last couple, two, three years. And so what they point to is that they they laid out the, the early electrical wires, telegraph wires, following the tracks that these trains ran along. And so the supposition is that, you know, when they cranked up these electrical wires and they're hovering over steel tracks and, you know, and all these humans are inside these steel trains, they're basically being radiated and showing symptoms, again, that we've become very familiar with. So, yeah, I think all of this is real and all, and, and, and it's, it's demonstrable. And, and again, it's like, you know, we, we, we live in, in, the, in a modern epoch that divorced itself from an analog age that went back who knows how long. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, Matthew Smith. 
architect extraordinaire. And I got to say, it's interesting, the the synchronicity. We, we spoke on a Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. You're the third uh, guest, I believe, or second guest I had on the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. And your email is new architecture. And a lot of this uh, synchronicity really kicked up when my girlfriend and I found Peter Shampoo's book. And we just happened to speak to Peter Shampoo last night. And one of the things that we found out from Peter in his book and some of the research I've done is that the uh, concept of the new arc, right, mm. is really uh, ingrained in the psychology of the colonies and how they were founded and the town of newark nobody really pronounces it the way it, it, we are right now newark but newark new jersey uh was founded with that idea in mind and that's why it was named newark uh, to mm -hmm. be the new ark and the people that founded newark new jersey uh they originally lived in new haven connecticut so i found that really synchronistic for us being from this area and fascinated with the New Haven stuff. So before I go on a big diatribe about that, uh, tell us about yourself, man, and, and, and what brought you here, you know, not just, you know, listening to my show, but like what got you started into this vein of, of interests and metaphysics and, and how they interact with architecture? Well, it's fascinating that you bring up the email. That's an old email that goes back to my time living and studying architecture in Newark, New Jersey. Wow. And there's a book by Le Corbusier called The Modern Architect called Towards a New Architecture. And at that time, I was very enamored with modern architecture, the Bauhaus school, so forth. I, I went to school at New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark. So towards a new architecture, I thought that sounded pretty cool. And I was there in Newark. And so I kind of picked up on that. So that stuck new architecture uh, with a K. And at that time, I was working with this pretty radical poet, Amiri Baraka, who has deep roots. His family, the Baraka family has deep roots in Newark. And he, he has connections back to Black Panther Party. He, um, he was sort of in a parallel political movement. During those times, he was a beatnik poet, um, friends with Allen Ginsberg. Um, and uh, he's from Newark. And his son, Rasbrock, is now the, uh, the mayor of Newark. And, and so for uh, much of the... Um, latter half of the 90s into the 2000s. I worked with their family on different grassroots political campaigns. Uh, but specifically specifically with Amiri, uh, I was involved with um, some uh, grassroots urban renewal programs. Uh, Lincoln Park Coast Cultural District comes to mind. And uh, he was really focused on Lincoln Park, um, the Coast Cultural District. It's, it's an old... Um, jazz district so newark apparently was uh, at that time back in the 60s 70s it was a jazz hub uh there was a few places uh in in the united states that were considered you know like the epicenter of the jazz world and newark was one of them so that was the coast they called it the coast and and uh looking back on it it's just so interesting um 
there there were a lot of old red brick buildings that were um at the time i was there was in early to mid 2000s studying architecture and i would go around with him looking at these buildings and he would tell me stories about who played you know who played where and um and so he was really trying to spearhead this movement uh to to rehabilitate newark uh through the cultural arts and through um you know giving new life to to that legacy uh so he had this um handle he used to talk about newark being a new arc and so he pronounced it this way as well um so you know and i don't want to get too far ahead because where i would like to go with this conversation is back to those red brick buildings um I see them in a very different light right now, but at the time that I was living in Newark, um, a lot of them were being torn down and I just kind of, I, I just, I have a, a, it made a big impression on me that they were losing this beautiful old world building stock uh, still at that time. And it's for lack of upkeep, you know, things were, just not kept up and maintained and and instead of making me uh, rehabilitate them they would tear them down um so as it turns out there's a long much deeper history to any to, to that than i i had any idea about at the time um but i did grow up outside of newark um i spent my childhood in a town called nutley um it was right down Route 21 from Newark, and I have some pretty, um, you know, distinct memories of driving into Newark, just going to the airport or something, um, and you know, looking up and from you know our station wagon and seeing project buildings and uh, realizing, like, well, you know, not everybody lives like I do out here in in Nutley, and uh, it made a big impression on me. And um, so in, in many ways, uh, sowed seeds of um, wanting to build a better world, like wondering to myself as a, as a little kid, like, you know, why do some people live this way and some people live, you know, a wholly different way? And we're just right down the street from each other, you know. And um, so I carried that with me um, into, well, into uh, my adulthood and and into uh, finally going to school to get my architecture degree, I wanted to come out of school. And um, what my goal was at that time was to get involved with uh, low-income housing. And I, I believed I had a very kind of utopian uh, ideal that, you know, you could, if you wanted to, you could just build better houses for working class people and, and, and uh, you know, build a better world. And so uh, while I was uh, studying architecture, I was also very involved, as I said, in, in grassroots work. And, and my goal, again, at that time was to, to bring those worlds together. So that didn't exactly work out as I had thought it would. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found was that those opportunities uh, weren't really there because the political will wasn't there. Our economy is not set up for 
building, you know, glorious housing for poor people and, and so forth. Um, I, I eventually moved out to Seattle um, to, to start a family and to start my architecture career. And this was in 2004. And 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And um, so I was still pretty active at that time. Um, and I was involved with an organization called Architects, Designers, and Planners. Um, it was EDPSR, Architects, Designers, Planners. Uh, um, sorry, that's escaped me right now. Um, for social responsibility. There it is. Mm. And um, so I spearheaded uh, in, in that organization's effort to lend a hand um, to the recovery effort in New Orleans. And so I went down there and, and, and the architects that were involved with that organization, it was a national group and a lot, they were very well intended, um, but they didn't really have an idea of how to proceed, how to, how to actually, how do professional architects help in a situation where there's this, you know, catastrophe and there's, um, you know, people are just trying to meet the basic needs. And so there's this, you know, there's this sort of tendency to approach everything through better design. And, but what does that look like in this kind of a situation? And so my idea was, well, you know, with my, you know, grassroots organizing background, I said, well, why don't I just go down there and meet people and find the organizations that are actually doing this kind of work? And, um, you know, doing the recovery work and then asking them what they need. Like, and so that's what I did. I, I, I went down and, and um, the organization flew me down there and I spent some time and I dug around and I, and I found the, the leaders of the community um, and that were leading these efforts. And um, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, you know, I remember the East Ward was uh, just devastated. And there was a, a group of uh, kind of like anarchists um, that took over uh, some, an, an intersection and just established themselves and started basically, they planted themselves there and they, they were working with um, the community members and they just started renovating houses. They didn't ask anybody's permission. There were no inspectors coming around. They just got in there and inserted themselves, built relationships and, um, lived in what looked like a war zone. Um, and that was incredibly inspirational. And at the same time, that gap between um, a more like a formal institution, institutional uh, response that was helpful to the community and what the actual like, community was doing, that gap just seemed insurmountable. Um, and so in some ways it was incredibly inspirational in other ways it was it left me feeling more despondent than ever and feeling feeling like uh whatever changes need to be made in order to sort of achieve you know um, um, this utopian vision that i had for so many years um those changes weren't going to come soon and they're not going to come easily and so i started to uh, pull back a little bit, you know, I had at this time, started, you know, had a, a family that I needed to focus on. Uh, I have three sons and you know, I'm very involved with their lives. And, um, and at the same time, 
um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be uh, a builder and a, a doer maker. I wanted to create, I tried my hand at architecture in the profession proper in Seattle. And it just seemed, um, I didn't fit. It was very, um, very technocratic. And, um, and so I found myself just kind of leaving one job after another. And, uh, 2008 rolled around. There was the housing crash that happened at that time. And I, I was working for a, um, a custom residential architect and, um, the projects we were working on just pretty much like bottomed out because of the economics, the economic situation. And I found myself, um, once again, just kind of on my own, starting over, looking around and figuring out what to do. And, um, I guess long story short is we, uh, my wife and I, um, we got out of the city, out of Seattle, picked up a third of an acre in the woods on the Olympic Peninsula. And we had a, uh, access to, um, a 40 foot trailer, which was just completely run down. So I renovated this trailer and moved into it and lived on this land out in the woods and raising our little kids and decided that we were going to build a yurt. And here in the Northwest, the yurts are pretty common, but the building departments don't like them too much because they don't, you know, they don't want people living in what they consider a temporary structure that doesn't meet energy codes and so forth. They don't, and so they, they frown upon that and it's hard to get a permit. We knew somebody that lived in one with his, with his family and they got kicked out by the county. And so then I found out about, uh, just through a conversation with a friend, uh, passing conversation, I found out about these, uh, wooden yurt structures that were being manufactured in Washington state as prefabricated kits. And I thought that sounded pretty cool. So. I looked into it and lo and behold, um, uh, they're there in, in the Meta Valley, um, wooden yurts, just like it sounds, but made out of two by six studs, plywood, metal roofs, and basically really stout structures. And so I started designing my first wooden yurt house and we took about three years living in this trailer in the woods and and um built this house and it turned out beautifully and it it turned it at the time it was the biggest structure that this company produced the the exterior walls were 14 foot tall it's a 35 foot diameter so it's basically a you know a giant um you know, um, conical vaulted structure and then tricked out the interior, built wraparound porches and a small addition on it. And, um, they really liked the work that I was doing on that project. So they started feeding me other clients. I then I designed and built a couple more out in the islands in the Puget Sound. And 
then I started getting design clients and more and more. And, and pretty soon I was done building and I was full-time designing. And so I've been doing that ever since. Um, and at this point I've designed way, well over a hundred of these structures uh, all over the country. And uh, I just, I love it. Um, they're absolutely wonderful structures. They make beautiful homes. Um, everybody that ever goes into one ends up smiling. It's just this really nice um, vibration that they carry. And so through through the process of, of designing, building these houses and, and working with clients um, who, everybody who ends up building one of these has an interesting story, you know, their own journey that's led them to this decision to get away from rectilinear houses and kind of get out into nature and live in the round. And so I've seen it over and over again. Um, it's, it has a very sort of transformative quality to it. And so I've long, you know, for years I've been kind of scratching my head about that and, and wondering what is it, what's that special quality uh, that these structures carry. And um, so more and more, it, what occurred to me is there actually is a vibration. The structures carry a vibration, they carry an energy. And I attribute, I attribute that to uh, the pure, uh, the pure uh, physical quality to them. Um, you have walls in the round, up at the top of the walls and at the base of the rafters, you have steel tension cables holding it in. And at the top, there's a giant compression ring where you know, you'll have 50 or however many rafters going around in a spiral. The rafters are pushing into this compression ring and pushing out on the steel tension cables. And so it's like a drum. And so when you're in there, you know, you hear the, the echo, you hear, you feel the vibration, you can, you can feel it inside your, inside your body. And so all of this experience has led me uh, to really think about structures in this way, you know, to, to, to think about sacred structures. Um, it's not just the, uh, the the um, the religion, let's say, uh, or the faith within a church or a, a temple, um, it's actually the building itself that's carrying, you know, a container in a in a in a physical form, a container of something that's deeply profound, and it's it's led me into some really interesting areas of research. I love that man. Wow. Wow, thank you for for giving us the the long and short of it and and I am going to assume that the yurt behind you was designed by you. Is that correct? Is this a photo of a yurt you've designed yourself or is this just a random photo you found online? No, well, it is online. Um but it's the first one that I designed and built. I had a family house. Yeah, it looks incredible and and I've been sort of marveling at it as you've been describing this and the way you put it like a drum where the, the tension is being exchanged between that compression ring, the steel cables, and the shape and the structure of the building itself, that's really incredible. I, 
I almost wonder if maybe you could like skin, uh, you know, put some skin at the top of that compression ring and figure out a way where, you know, you have some device that hits it. You know, I know it's all the way up at the top of the ceiling, but that'd be kind of cool to, to have a drum built into the, the ceiling of your living space. Uh, I've kind of done that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Tell us about yeah. it. Well, just, you know, in the process of building it before you put the roofing on. Right. You have all these exposed rafters with that five foot compression ring all open and yeah man you can play it like an instrument for sure that's awesome yeah i'd love to see a video of that if you have uh have it but i'm curious how much of the landscape is factored in when you're designing something because when i when i'm looking at this yurt behind you i notice that there's sort of a walkway that goes over water you're sort of letting the water flow past the structure itself like are you taking into account these things the direction of the sun as it passes over the yurt and and how important are those natural landscape features to selecting a, a location to start building yeah, uh, completely uh, site-specific. They don't have to be. Um, you know, you, 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 could, you could build a beautiful structure, you know, without taking all of that into account. But when you take that into account, you take the orientation of the, um, the views of the path of the sun, um, natural features. Um, it just, it, it starts to resonate with the environment itself. Right. And so for this site, this, this is a winter Creek, um, that fills up after the, you know, the snow melt. And so it springs to life, uh, for a couple of months a year. And it, it was in that boardwalk that goes over and leads to a pavilion that was deeper into, in the woods. Um, and so we, you know, it took a number of years to shape the land and, um, work around it. it. We really had, we really went through a process of getting to know the land. It, and we, it wasn't like right away we knew exactly how everything was going to go. It's like we built the house and lived there and got to know, got to know the features of the land, got to know the climate. Um, so it was a, you know, it's a dialogue that, uh, you know, evolved over a period of years. Right. Now, you mentioned the when you're talking about the zoning permits and whatnot, they consider these temporary structures. Is that a sort of just like you know bureaucratic ling mumbo jumbo, or do these <laughs> things actually like last a certain amount of time? Right, because I I grew up in a house that was built in the I think the the eighteen early eighteen hundreds and. Mm -hmm. it, you know it wasn't my dad did a lot of work to make that thing you know up to spec so that it was a livable livable place you know before we moved in when i was very young uh, an old lady had been living there for almost a century and it was just like you know the way she had it when she first bought it it was you know totally uh, a relic so i would argue that most of our structures aren't very permanent to begin with so what qualifies this as a permanent or temporary right so uh just to be clear so this this is a permanent structure mm. considered permanent you know it's it'll last for as long as any house uh would last um the temporary structures were the canvas type okay. years that inspired this right okay 
So those are the those are the ones that are popular out here because they're they're relatively affordable. They're perfectly good structures. And if I could have, I would have lived in one because it would have been a lot. I wouldn't have had to get a mortgage. For one, um, you know, you can deal with the um, maybe the lack of insulation by using a wood burning stove and you know what have you and those structures. But those are the ones that are considered temporary structures mm. uh, by building departments. Mm. Um, these structures meet, you know, all the, all the building codes, all the energy codes and so forth. Um, but as far as like the codes go, um, I, this is where I don't get along with the architecture profession Mm. as such, because, you know, living close to Seattle, I see, I see what they're doing. Uh, with the development, it's just like rapid development, office buildings and condos and, you know, tearing out old housing stock and just kind of stripping this area, the city of its, of its character and um, introducing a lot of stresses in the process. Um, and so a lot of the, a lot of a lot of the structures, especially the, the condo development, you know, they kind of sell it as uh, densification. And so that's supposed to be sustainable and affordable, but I don't think it's either of those things. Mm. What they end up doing is they end up designing these, um, these, these big corporate developers come in and they end up designing condos, max, max, maxing out the building envelope according to what's allowed by the zoning codes. Mm. And they basically, if you look at them, they look like zoning code, you know, graph, um, graphics, you know, in, in, um, you know, they're, they're the sort of antithesis of, uh, you know, a, a resonant structure, a structure with, right. You know, vi- vibration. And, well, it's, and, it's all about, you know, you know maximum, uh, profit uh, minimum waste right so they're just and, and by waste i mean not wasted materials but wasted space right so they're trying to fill up as much space as possible with as many people in those limited confines that they have to build and i've seen some really ugly ones we used to have a, a beautiful quarry uh, on route 67 in, in uh connecticut these huge massive pieces of granite and they uh they cord it all out, pull it out, and now there's this like monstrosity of a condo. It's like half shopping mall, half condo, where these people like live, you know, basically in a shopping mall. And it's, you know, I I, I get the appeal, but not my style. And and it totally dampens the the energy of that route. You know, it used to be sort of like a a magnetic spot that you'd drive by all these big rocks. You'd feel their presence. They were close to the road and now they're just like gutted. There's probably one shard of granite left that they have like on its axis is like a sort of structure or statue of some sort. But yeah, it doesn't seem like they're, they're taking into account the, like the energy of the land and you mentioned the red bricks. I know we're going to spend some time talking about that, but it does seem like, you know, here you, you're from New Jersey, so you probably have a similar uh, nostalgia for this sort of thing. But you, you have a certain feeling when you're in a neighborhood where there's Victorian, like very ornate buildings, like they, they shine. They, they're like, they're poking out at you like, hey, look at me compared to these like 
plain, flat-faced, shingled houses that you have everywhere now, and and even worse is sort of concrete structures that are all very brutal looking. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 unique to be in a place like New England or or even New Jersey where those structures are still at least around in the historic areas. I imagine out in the West, I've never been to Washington or anywhere out there, but I imagine it must be a little different. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it, what's interesting about Seattle or was interesting for me coming here from, from the Newark, New York city area is how new it is. It feels very uh, new in terms of, um, you know, the urban development and so forth. Um, but that said, there are some, <laughs> there's some old buildings out here that kind of, you know, raise a lot of questions. And Seattle mm-hmm. has a very strange history too. I don't know if you've heard about Seattle's underground city. No, you know what? We've done a we've done an episode on my other podcast, Esoteric America, about Seattle. But we spent the majority of the time talking about the Native American cultures there, and then we spent a little bit of time at the end talking about the fires that mm-hmm. took place there. But I'm fascinated. I, I think there's certainly, I mean, I've heard of the, um, in Portland, they have those tunnels that go out to where the mm-hmm. docks are and you get Shanghai and <laughs> sent to China. That's where that comes from. Uh, but I imagine Seattle's similar. What, how, how deep does it go underneath Seattle? Well, when I first moved here um, 17 years ago, um, I took a tour of this underground Seattle. It was a curiosity at the time and I didn't think too much of it, although it just seemed odd that you'd go down a stair through a lock gate from the you know downtown street level, and you enter another downtown below grade, and you can walk down a street with the sidewalk and storefronts that are brick faced storefronts, and they even have you know some of the signage is still there from the time just, period. Yeah, and so the story goes that um, they finished building the city and then realized it's it floods, so they decided to rebuild it uh, story higher. They rebuilt the street grade. They raised everything, and it just again it just is always like this curiosity, but strange and like that doesn't sound right, but okay. Yeah, and then I find out that cities like chicago have a very similar story uh with a little bit of a twist where chicago you know was swampy and so they decided after they were done building it that they were going to raise all of the buildings physically rate lift the buildings off the ground and build new foundations under them so those stories like the more you kind of scratch the surface of american cities those really strange stories start piling up um yeah and and to add into that like you mentioned fires um it took me you know i spent six years in formal architecture you know school at the university level and you hear about the chicago fire um i heard about the seattle fire when i moved out here but what i didn't know about was that like every every city in the united states seems to have burnt down at some point <laughs> in the 1800s um, and into the 1900s and went through some major um, uh, reconstruction um, 
And so that kind of gets into a whole other area of curiosity. And it's like at, at a certain point, you, you pull back and you're like, what do you do with this information? Um, what do you do with the knowledge that, um, you know, the stories that were presented as far as, you know, how our nation has developed and, how, you know, how it grew. We are, we are. I come to find out that most American cities at some point or another in the 1800s and the 1900s burned down. And um, typically the fires were concentrated on, you know, like business districts, um, financial core, financial center. Places and where they had a lot of insurance. <laughs> yeah, a lot of insurance, but also a lot of uh, records is mm, what I surmise. Mm, even more. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh. Ah. And because who owns what? What's the history of the city? Right. You know, ownership is a big deal. And so, and if I jump off into too many directions, just rein me in because no, I'm it's with sort you. Of a big rabbit hole. Yeah, no, I'm with you. We're, you know, I'm not sure how much of uh, my stance on Tartari you've heard, but I'm typically a little more skeptical than than the majority of people I think that talk about Tartaria. Uh, mostly because I'm more of a generalist. I'm dealing with a lot of different topics. That's not my specific focus, mm -hmm. Tartaria, but it fascinates me. I just my my biggest suspicions are where the Native Americans are involved because. If if Tartaria existed here in America, they were a part of it somehow. They have, they must have been right. So I'm all for it if they're included, but I, I get a little disenchanted when when they're not. But anyways, I'm I'm saying too much. I'm saying too <laughs> well, much. I'll keep you. We, <laughs> I'll keep you on track. Jumped into the deep end, so this is good. And you said the T word first. <laughs> so I, I avoid I avoid that term. Old world is is the more appropriate term i agree i, I think I that like makes the term sense old world um and and in, uh, increasingly i'm using the term analog world mm. right because um what who you know tartaria it's like i i don't know like i'm just trying to figure out what was there right and i don't know who was responsible mm. you know i don't i can't attribute it to this or that unknown civilization that is on the maps on the other side of the world at a different time in the past. Like it's, that's to me, that's a, a bridge too far. Right. And I'm not saying it's not, I just don't know that it is. And it's, it seems like a distraction to me. Mm. So I try to let the buildings speak for themselves. Um, I try to look, you know, look squarely at um, things that we do know, you know, we know that I know that I can go downtown Seattle and that there's an underground and then the story that they, kind of overlaid seems a little bit silly. doesn't make sense that they would finish the city and then raise the street level, the whole story, and then start over as soon as they finish. Like, it's a lot of work to build the city. Right. Why would you want to do it twice? <laughs> you know, it seems silly to me that they... Well, even uh, the idea of lifting a building and... Lifting building. Like, that's, that seems like a heroic feat. How did they even yeah. pull that? How do you even pull that off? city of buildings... And then again, it's like, we know, you know, or we can point, we can point to documentation with this photo, uh, photographic evidence of these great fires, uh, the San Francisco fire, 
you know, certainly the Chicago fire, New York City had a fire. I mean, you can go down a long list of cities that burned to the ground for one reason or another. Um, so I, I just like to look at what we can put our hands on. And so for me, again, it's the, there, I've come to the conclusion that there was an old world civilization here in the, what is now the United States. And maybe it was the United States, but an earlier iteration before much of it got destroyed or dismantled. Um, and I've also found out through um, my own independent research that in speaking back to what materials um, were used to build things, what, what, what do we use to build things with and what impact does that have on the life of the building? Um, a lot of the old world buildings were built with a very different set of materials than the modern i'd say the modern age buildings and to me the big line of demarcation between the old world and the new is um it's the advent of modernity it's you know what we refer to as the industrial revolution it's when they started running electricity through wires going from a power plant to you know a user by way of a meter that can be quantified and controlled well, possibly in other words when they begin to centralize everything right i mean that's what these electric wire grids are were really all about was connecting all the power grids so they'd be in one system instead of a bunch of independent systems right i think the west coast and the east coast are both on their own respective grids and texas has its own grid but I, I think like the power companies here, at least in New England, they all started as local power companies. They build a, a power station on the river, generate electricity and share it with just the local area. Right. Mm -hmm. So there there came a point when they when they sort of connected them all. Is this what you're describing? Like the centralization, the homogenization mm -hmm. of our of our society and our infrastructure? In part, I think that's part of the process of, yes, increasing mm. centralization within the modern era. Mm. But the point at which they they divorce themselves from this old world, that's the point that I'm really interested in. And again, you know, what do we call it? I don't need to really call it anything. I'm just kind of interested in the thing itself. Um, so I, I want to show you this book I've got. Um, <clears throat> does this show up? American Cements by Elijah Cummings. Yeah, when it's in front of your shoulder, it comes up. American Cements. Yes. So this book was written in 1898. Okay. And this book was put together by this fellow, Uriah, Uriah Cummings, where he chronicles, there's 300 pages of like um, a deep dive into the nature of cement. And so what he lays out here is that the old world was built with what they call it's natural cement. It's an Amer American rock cement. So you talk about the granite quarries that you pass and it had a certain feeling to it, right? There's a certain vibe and now they put these ticky tacky structures up and the vibe goes down. 
my contention is that that's real. That's not just, you know, that you have a certain aesthetic sense. That may be true. Um, you know, what there is ugly versus the granite boulders that were, you know, the outcroppings were beautiful. That is also true, but there's actual vibration. Mm, to it. I'm sensing something. It's not just like perspective. It's not subjective. There's an objective truth there. Correct. It's right. the same vibration, the same type of feeling of walking into one of these round structures versus right. maybe oxy house. Yeah. You're feeling a vibration. So what he lays out, so first of all, he, his book, he goes through and he chronicles um, all of these natural rock quarries all over the United States. One in particular that I visited um, in the Catskills, it's called the Rosendale Mine. And um, it's a vast system of uh, uh, quarries, underground yeah mines that apparently was it's 32 square mile area of underground mines i mean it's just massive and i just went into a small piece of it you can you can visit it um and so inside what i felt like when i walked into this cavernous space was that this was a very ancient place that's what that's what i sensed i felt like this is a very very ancient place the ceilings of uh the mines were maybe like 30 feet tall and it's called a, um the quarrying technique is called room and pillar so where you're taking out scooping out a room and you're leaving columns so it's really interesting because they in in sort of modern, modern geological engineering um, when you're doing this technique, they allow for uh, a removal of 60% of the material, and you have to leave 40% in, in these structural columns holding up the, the, the roof of the mine. In the Rosendale mine, uh, it's considered an engineering marvel because they've removed upwards of 90% of the material and left only 10% in terms of these columns. And in some cases, they've done it at extreme angles, which increases the physical load um, even more. Wow. So it sort of defies like conventional uh, geological engineering. And they did this in a time uh, during the 1800s when we didn't even have, you know, such a level of, you know, um, material science that we do now. Mm. So he he compiles a list of not all but many of the buildings in the United States that were produced by with this particular kind of cement. When I refer to the cement, I'm not talking about the bricks or the stone. This is this is the mortar. You know, this is the glue that's holding it together. And so the 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 buildings that are attributed to this cement and again he put this list together in 1898 they're all the buildings that we look at and pictures and go holy cow look at that it's so beautiful you know there's the base of the statue of liberty there's the brooklyn bridge there's the, the united states capitol building um there's interestingly enough the old patent office um we talked about record keeping and what happens to records <laughs> in city conflagrations um 
the old patent office is on his list. In 1877, the patent office, the United States patent office burned down for the second time. It burned down once in 1830 or 1835, taking all of the records of patents that, you know, form the foundation of, you know, scientific advance advancement in the United States at its very young age, and it burned to the ground and all those records disappeared. And then they rebuilt, they built a new building or they inhabited and they moved the office and that building burned down again in 1877. So it's like all the records of whatever happened before were disappeared twice over, um, which is curious. So it's also curious to me that that building too was made with this particular cement. Um, This cement, um, why, I'm so um, enamored with it, other than the fact that it's sort of a roadmap to the old world. Um, it has very special qualities. It's very distinct then uh, from, from Portland cement. And Portland cement is sort of the material of the new world. Portland cement is um, made up of a bunch of stuff. It's kind of a conglomerate of different things. Um, has a lot of additives in it and um, so forth. Whereas this natural rock cement is just what it sounds like. It's natural rock. It's the rock that comes out of the ground and just that. They run it through a process of superheating it, you know, pulverizing it, and then producing this cement with it. And what it is, what it essentially is, is uh, calcium silicate. So calcium is, you know, the material that strengthens bones and so forth. Um, silicate, uh, silica, is silicate is oxygen and silica. Silica is what quartz is made out of. And so where my mind is going with this is like, you, you know, I heard one of your previous guests talk about piezoelectric generation. And when, when I heard him mention that, a light bulb went off for me. Because I keep thinking like, you know, this research community likes to talk about, you know, red brick as like, you know, potential, you know, uh, charge carrying voltage carrying battery packs. Right. Uh, I've heard that talked about, but I've never actually heard any kind of like hard, you know, science or, you know, anybody really pointing to how and why other red brick contains iron. So I get that. Um, but with, the actual mortar, and I have never really heard people talking about the mortar, the properties of the mortar. So if you have a mortar material that's made out of this natural cement that is half silica and half, and half calcium, the silica portion is, it's quartz, right? It's quartz crystal. It's, it's the same stuff that quartz crystal is made out of. And so we know that when you put quartz under compression, it produces voltage it produces an electrical charge right it's the basis of radios and i'm i'm not an expert in any of this i'm just kind of a lay person that likes to build roundhouses and make cool things with my hands but um so i'm you know and there's a lot of people that are looking at this question of the old world um and i feel like i feel like uh we're cert- we're living in a time where, you know, there's a lot of talk of great reset and everything and like changing things up again. But at the same time, there's a lot of really interesting research going on looking back and what we had and where we came from. 
and rediscovering some things that we might have lost along the way. And so for me, again, it's like whatever we call it, um, when I consider the fact that a lot of these old, exquisite, old world buildings in these cities, many of which were have been destroyed deliberately or lost by fire, some of which are still with us, thankfully, but that they're made with a material that under pressure actually emits or produces voltage or could carry a, a charge, that the buildings themselves could have an electrical property just by, just by their being. And this would be where st certain structures, sacred structures, would hold the intention, so to speak, of the inhabitants, right? And, and maybe even act in a way where our houses today don't, uh, as a, a conductor and a generator of these positive energy fields, instead of nullifying it. Like a lot of the right. materials in our houses today nullify a charge. They, they, they're like right. rubbery, you know, they sort of stop it where it is. And, and that's not a healthy um, state of being, you know, we're fluid, energetic yeah. beings, you know, that, that static energy yes. that's everywhere around us is, is a big uh, malcontributor to our health in a way, yeah. you know, depending yeah. on, uh, you know, mm -hmm. where you where you look at it, obviously diet and other things play a factor, but this is uh, one of the lesser known aspects of our health that maybe we could find some proof by testing, you know, the health of an individual who lives in, you know, home A versus home B that has these types of uh, materials integrated into the structure. Yeah, you think about what a Faraday cage mm. is, what it does, like it, it can protect one from an, an external electrical you know charge right um but it can also it can also block good you know electromagnetic energy from from reaching habits like my my kids um my youngest boy goes to a, a middle school down the street here and it's a brand new school and we watched it being built and the entire thing is steel studs and i'm looking at this going up and saying geez they're building a giant faraday cage Right. And yeah. so it's going to block good, <laughs> good electromagnetic charge from reaching all of these children. And, and then inside of it, you, you know, stuffing it full of EMF, Wi Fi, and lights. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so I think all of that is very real. And I, and, you know, and then we can, you know, go, go down the rabbit hole of, you know, the, the list of sicknesses and ailments that some people attribute to the proliferation of 5G towers that suddenly showed up when we were being locked down for a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> I just cracked this book. A friend shared this with me. Have you seen this book? Yeah, I have it actually. Yeah. Uh, I think I picked it up at the used bookstore a couple of days uh nowadays a couple of weeks ago yeah it's on my shelf over there <laughs> yeah well it's it's a tool and i'm a slow reader uh the invisible rainbow but i cracked it and where it starts out um is with the old railroad riders 
in the or in the mid 1800s and they used to get really sick and the list of symptoms looks a lot like the symptoms that we've been seeing show up in the last couple two three years hmm. and so what they point to is that um they they laid out the um the early electrical wires um telegraph wires following the tracks that these trains ran along and so the supposition is that you know when they cranked up these electrical wires and they're hovering over steel tracks and you know and all these humans are inside these steel trains they're basically being radiated and showing symptoms again that would become very familiar with so yeah i think all of this is real and all and and, and it's it's demonstrable and and again it's like you know we 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 live in in a modern epoch um that divorced itself from an analog age that went back who knows how long mm-hmm. and again it's like it's very it's ironic that i still carry that e- email address new architecture because le corbusier he was one of the worst offenders as far as laying out this new modern you know era and like I I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but, you know, just think of the projects, think of project buildings, the ones Mm -hmm. that I was referring to, you know, looking at when I was a little kid driving to, you know, driving my parents to the Newark um, airport, Um, those modern um, tenement type structures were conceived of as a utopian scheme by uh, people like Corbusier. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how those ideas have this veil of uh, good intention and and ultimately uh, fail at at bringing that into fruition. It, it seems like they've created ghettos purposefully, uh, places where people have uh, so much a competition and b uh, lack of resources that they end up fighting each other instead of fighting what's oppressing them. There's a there's so many different aspects to it, and mm. and um, um, the part you know, and everybody's got to kind of pull an oar if we're going to get to a better place. And and for myself, the the the, the oar that I'm trying to pull right now, the thing that I'm trying to learn more about, and 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 hopefully uh, start communicating, um, and you know, being on your podcast right now is really you know a part of like one of the first times I'm really coming out with um you know these these views um i'm really trying to look squarely at the types of buildings the types of structures that we have had in the past the types of structures that we've been building for the last i don't know 150 years and the types of structures that we're going to build to inhabit in the future and um i think by now there's enough information to look at and um make a case for healing structures versus six structures mm-hmm. structures that raise the vibration and structures like projects that would just by their nature lower the vibration of the people living in them right right i agree and i'm glad that uh we have folks like yourself designing this new future and and pulling an oar i think you're spot on and i'm glad to have this conversation here on this show it's sure to inspire people and i'm happy to be a part of that and 
you mentioned something earlier about cement being sort of like a road, this, this particular type of cement being the roadmap. Um, I'm assuming you're referring to how you can sort of trace yeah. where these buildings may be in relationship to this old world by whether or not they utilize this cement. Have you found many examples of, of this? Like, are there any interesting buildings that are worth mentioning? I mean, we can even possibly pull up some pictures here for the uh, viewing audience. Yeah, well, the building that really got me um, um, kind of cued on to this was um, the uh, Port, um, Fort Jefferson, which you've probably looked into a little bit. Fort Jefferson off the coast of the Florida Keys and like the farthest reaches of the of that string of islands way out in the, way out in the middle of nowhere. And the, it's the largest, um, I think it's the largest uninhabited masonry structure in the United States. And it was supposedly built for, you know, military purposes. It's way out in the ocean and has 16 million bricks. And uh, after they completed it, they decided that it wasn't very practical, so they didn't really use it. So that's the story. And it's, again, these stories, <laughs> you know, they you start scratching the surface and they start not making sense. <clears throat> right. So this building in the 70s was going through a, 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 a restoration process. And this is the one, um, this is the project where they realized, hey, there's something, there's something wrong uh, with what we're trying to do, because the chemical, uh, the chemical composition of the Portland cement-based mortar that they were trying to um, have adhered to this structure wasn't working, and chemically, um, concrete is, you know, it's very sensitive chemically and it's very particular, very specific, and you have to match like with like. And so, you know, they investigated and what they realized is that this is a different type of cement, that this, in fact, is put together with this natural American rock cement that came from Roslyn, New York, hmm. there in the Catskills. Wow. And so that now, since then, they've, you know, it's there's been a resurgence of understanding that hey, look, all these old world buildings um, have a have a unique makeup, and so there's a cottage industry now where they, you know, reproduce some of these old cements, and so they're used widely in um, historic preservation architecture, but not, you know, not on that um, industrial scale. We're still using Portland cement for most of our structures now mm. yeah so there's a there's a there's actual um you know if they have a fingerprint so to speak yeah that's interesting it's like a forensic type of science where you can trace mm -hmm. things back and uh yeah that's incredible so w where do the red bricks fit into this can you trace them back to a sort of origin point or is that a little more general i mean it seems like like uh because I can remember playing with red bricks in my backyard as a kid. Like my dad had just like a big pile of them because he he cobbled his own driveway and you know built a bunch of stuff in our backyard. So he's always been kind of that kind of guy who builds things himself. And I remember 
Uh, you know, when you're a kid, you get you get destructive. I take the bricks and slam them together and make this big loud noise. And sometimes there would be like sparks that would fly off. And you know, I was I was a little bit of a trouble uh, hellraiser. But uh, <laughs> you know, that was that was kind of a, a unique memory of mine is like playing with those bricks and like hearing the sound, like the very distinct like sound they would make when you'd clap them together. Yeah. And uh, so I haven't researched too much into it, except that with sort of a general knowledge, newer bricks seem to be a lot less dense than the older bricks. It's it's like it's like the wood, like in the old structures. A lot of the, I, I grew up again in New Jersey, and so I grew up in a hundred year old house, and and the studs in that house were true two by four and really dense grain. So it's a much, it's just a different quality material than the than like the white spruce, you know, one and a half by three and a half studs, really soft wood that we use to build houses nowadays. So the bricks, um, they're kind of similar, like the uh, at least in terms of their density. The farther back you go, it seems the stronger they are. You know, the more pounds per square foot you'd have to apply to a brick to crush it. Is this just a, a cost sort of uh, thing where they're sort of trying to cut corners and, and cheapen things up, uh, overall create more of an obsolete uh, product that has to be replaced eventually? Is that the intention? I mean, I, I think on some level, yeah, you have to conclude, you know, we live, you know, it's a disposable era that we're in, right? Everything is just, you know, designed obsolescence and it's no different with buildings, um, but I, on the other hand, I think that there are, um, they did things in such a way back in the days of the analog era, uh, we've lost, we've lost sight of, we've lost, um, we've lost a certain knowledge and I'm not saying that we can't reproduce those bricks. I don't know. I haven't researched it enough, but it's just that we don't, we don't make them like we used to. Mm, right. Yeah, the, the old adage is is truer than you'd think. Yeah, <laughs> we don't make them like we used to. So we've looked at this very odd structure out in the middle of the ocean there. Um, we have to assume that this was all shipped in. Are there other examples, maybe mainland examples of, uh, you know, unexplained structures, maybe things that are, are, are too advanced for what we could build today because that's one of the big head scratchers is like oh we couldn't build this today how'd they do it back then and you mentioned well, look, up, uh, look up the stadium high school in tacoma okay this is one of my favorite ones here's this castle looking building and i think it's a total of 12 stories built into a hillside which I took a tour of this. You can, they, 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 there's a fellow down in Tacoma, Washington, that runs historical architectural tours of old Tacoma. And so he took us around this thing. It's built into a hillside. And another very strange story behind this, where it was built as a hotel and then never finished for whatever reason in the late 1800s then it was used for storage for a number of years before finally you know somebody came along and funded its completion and, and then it became a high school you know mm. 
So, you know, we're talking to this fellow <clears throat> about, you know, where, where, where the bricks come from to make this thing. This is, you know, the late 1800s. Did they ship them up from San Francisco? Was there, was there a production facility down there? Um, he said, no, they, the bricks came from ballast weights in the ships bringing goods from China. I thought, that's interesting. And if you look closely at the bricks, they're, they're not just, you know, you know, clinkers. They're like the kind of Roman bricks. They're very narrow. Um, it's a high-quality brick. And so it, I thought it was curious that the story goes that these were just ballast weights. So they bring the ship here, and ballast weights basically keeps the ship steady, right? And then when they get to port, they offload the goods that they've got on the top, and then they get rid of the ballast weights in the bottom that were helping to balance the ship out. So basically, this was just like a disposable product is what he was saying, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they built this exquisite um, palatial high school with it, or you know, um, hotel-turned-high school. But I look closely at the building, and if you look around, if you look at the windows on the um, um, all over the building, they have arch top to the windows. And I looked at the at the bricks around the arches, and the bricks were trapezoids. And that's not easy to do. Like each brick was itself a trapezoidal shape, creating the arches, structural arches above the window. So there again, I thought, and I, I don't know why I didn't say anything to him. I didn't want to take the wind out of his sails, you know, the, the, um, our historical uh, guide there. Mm. But I thought that's just, that's not right. There's no way, <laughs> there's no way that they went through all this trouble to make these exquisite uh, trapezoidal bricks only to throw them in the bottom of the ship mm. and discard them on some far and shore. So, so there again, there's another story. Um, that's not apparent and it's just part of the mystery of you know where these structures came from and who built them and when yeah and now for people who may you know not understand why that would be significant is there a special technique that one would have to do to create a trapezoid brick i mean i guess it would be uh, not a, a, an efficient way to do it because you're taking like one chunk and you might have a bunch of scrap pieces, right? Because you're, is that the idea is that it wouldn't be a very efficient way to make bricks? So they wouldn't have gone and created this if they were merely meant to only be ballast weights, right? Because you don't need a special shape for a ballast weight. That would be my guess that there's just some form, you know, just a special form. Mm. Yeah, so they'd have to go out of the way to, to make specific shape for right, a brick right 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 yeah right makes sense it's mo it's a mole it's not carved i don't know what i'm thinking uh carving bricks <laughs> but so we have uh tacoma we have florida when you went to to new orleans i know we're kind of going back a little bit to uh, a point where maybe you didn't recognize this stuff right you weren't sort of researching this back then i assume um, but since you've gotten into this stuff, have you noticed anything in New Orleans that's you know, worth mentioning? Because New Orleans, I mean, that goes back all the way to the French initially, and they were they were in that city for a long time. 
Yeah, at that time, and this is 2005, I wasn't I wasn't looking at things through this lens. Um, you know, other than New Orleans, you know, the beautiful old world city that really seems out of place in the United States. It just every time I've been there, it just seems like this is from a a different place and different time, a different um, nation, almost different culture. Um, so what actually stood out for me at that time, and I know I was getting down on building codes before and being sort of onerous, but at the same time, um, what stood out for me at that time was the houses that uh, were built to code versus, you know, to, to modern building codes versus the houses that weren't, weren't, you know, built to any kind of code. They're just kind of put together. Um, and the, the, the effect of the hurricane and the flooding on houses that um, were built to code. It, I, there was a lot of those buildings that lasted and ones that were just kind of put together, just got smashed to bits. And so that, that was the biggest um, takeaway for me as a, a young architect and builder at that time was the importance of building codes. And also I, I do want to make a distinction between uh, building codes, as I mentioned, that's like life safety stuff. Um, versus the zoning codes and the zoning codes are what you know how big you can make the building and how close to the street front you can get you know you're given sort of a zoning envelope that you can max out um so a little bit of a different animal there um it does seem like new orleans to your point is is not a part of the the rest of the the structure but it is connected to this ley line that goes through Newark, New Jersey. So who knows? Maybe there's some synchronicity that carried you from one to the yeah. other. Uh, that Tell ley, me about that. Yeah, the ley line is called the Acadian ley line. Uh, Peter Shampoo also calls it the city ley line because of the amount of cities that are built on it. Uh, uh -huh. But from Mexico City to New Orleans to Atlanta to Washington, D.C., then Philadelphia, then through New Jersey, hitting through Newark and obviously New York City because they're right next to each other, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and then Boston. You can draw a straight line through all those cities, and then that city uh, on the globe curves and goes through Stonehenge and makes its way uh, around the globe and then back to you know Mexico City, uh, and it crosses through several other interesting places uh, globally that I don't have off the top of my head, but yeah, that's the, the city ley line. So when they, when they talk about ley lines, um, how, how is that measured? How is it, you know, I understand that there's cities that you can string in a line. Um, but how is it determined that there's a ley line there Did Peter shampoo explain this? Yeah, he's, he's looked at the earth in a sort of uh, what he calls geography, where there's a sort of living pattern that emerges, and the coincidence of those cities all being along that one linear point or linear axis is not a coincidence, is his essential theory. Whether or not he's like doused the ley line to determine that it's mm -hmm. there. I don't think that that's necessarily even uh, needed. You know, it's just sort of mm -hmm. evidential that people have built along this central axis 
and, mm-hmm. and multiple different cultures as well. So w- what he's sort of talked about with the actual like geometry of a ley line is that there's a central axis point, but then there's a sort of wave form, a positive and a negative wave form. So a ley line isn't necessarily one thin line. It's more of a band, uh, and you'll have sort of positive and negative uh, swings of that energy, and you'll have maybe like uh, certain structures in society that correspond to those negative and positive swings of energy. Uh, And Mm -hmm. you'll see certain cities arranged in such a way where it's almost like the north side is always affluent and the south side is always uh, impoverished, right? Like this is this is sort of like built into certain cities uh, using these energy structures, uh, getting the flow of energy to sort of spin in a certain way or understanding where it spins naturally and getting ahead of that by building, you know, the affluent neighborhoods where the energy is at its peak. I see. And then when it reaches the south side of the city, it's already been dispensed. It's sort of, you're getting like the remains of it. So there's, there's a few different dimensions to the ley line. You know, it's, it's think of it like a vine with a flower, you know, like the vine is a linear structure that's not completely linear. And then the, where it flowers is sort of like a spiral, a vortex and even a circle. Yeah. So interesting. So here, you know, we're, you know, you've got all these different people and researchers pulling pieces together and so i brought the mortar piece and and peter shampoo is bringing the ley line piece and and what's i think what's starting to emerge is this old world old world the analog world um that we inhabited until relatively recently in human you know in the course of human events Mm. um yeah it had it had uh, uh, uh a natural resonance like a, a building built with high energy materials in sort of like a you know in a, in a, in a crystalline form whether it's a dome or a vault or or in the case of you know sacred structures you know for cathedral which is like a like basically like a crystal it's right you're building you're building a cathedral like a crystal so it's going to have vibration if it's built upon a ley line that is carrying this kind of positive energy in that particular spot i mean you can imagine the high energy the 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 resonance that that's going to bring and you know add to that underneath of the uh underneath the cathedral maybe there's you know an underground current um water running and then throwing a pipe organ with forty thousand intonations in a rose window i mean you really got something there right right yeah, this is the, it seems this is the way our society used to flourish. And now we've been, uh, we've been kept away from those finer aspects of energy and vibration and, and left in this sort of uh, situation where we're being sickened, we're being radiated, we're being, you know, uh, not alleviated from these sort of entropies that are natural to certain parts of our environment we're being exposed more to them. You know, it seems like our structures used to shield us and offer some sort of, uh, reprise from that. And now we're just being bombarded, uh, on all fronts. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see a world where these structures are built with health in mind, certainly. Is there a a, a way to scale this out? Like how, how far does your designing go? Do you, do you like limit to just one building or would you like to one day design like the way a city functions? Cause I mean, cities, they're sort of like uh, organisms, you know, they have their separate parts and there's a sort of flow of energy in these different directions. Have you considered maybe designing like a neighborhood or a city or something to that extent? No, um, no, I'm, I'm focused on, you know, one house at a time right now. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's too much like a city is an organism. It's, it has to have an organic quality to it. Mm. Um, and I, you know, there's, I think we've all seen examples of these, they call ghost cities, Mm. um, in China and, 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 um, southwest uzbekistan or something like there's entire cities and then they just there yes and they just they're everything is uniform and i i i don't think that's the way a city uh develops or um should develop um urban planning i took enough urban planning courses um at the university level to just um i'm very um skeptical i guess and um i kind of hold it at arm's length um i think that it needs to be allowed to uh develop organically um so all i can manage at least for myself all i can manage is is to do a house at a time and and just keep doing that work and, and 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 you know apply apply these principles um where i can in my own work and the principle is that that inform my life. There are principles that inform how I want to be as a father. There are principles that inform how I'm going to interact with my neighbors and just the kind of energy that I put out into the world. Um, and as far as, you know, the design aspect of it, again, you know, it's, it's, it's a, um, Like I, I'm, I'm cautious about the idea that you can change society through the through design. You know, and again, I, I saw a lot of that sort of um, intention put into recovery efforts in in New Orleans uh, after Katrina, and um, where it didn't involve the community. And then where it did involve the community, they were, you know, people were just kind of left to their own devices. So, but I do think that in order to to develop. Um, cities it has to start at the community level i think communities have to be the heart you know of that sort of scale of design and at the heart of communities are families and and you know we live in an era where families are just under so much stress and strain that i don't know maybe good architecture just starts with strengthening families right you know people having enough time and resources to just you know improve their you know, their immediate environment. Right. Right. And, and, you know, all of these things can be demonstrated if we have the right science, like you can show with these finer aspects of our, our scientific, uh, maybe the newer aspects of science or, or even the older aspect, you know, the really ancient aspects of science, like cymatics and, and how to integrate these vibrations into the structure of a home 
could have a immediate effect on the health of of a family you know like the same way you mm-hmm. described that instant smile someone feels when they walk into your you know roundhouse structure your yurt structure it's like a an instant feeling of like wow okay i'm here this is this is nice uh maybe that's that's what we need more of cuz you know i i'm just speaking from my family's perspective but there's a very discordian energy when everybody's compartmentalized in their own room and everything's segmented like that, you know, if, if everybody was sort of rounded out, (laughs) you know, you could have your own space, but it's more communal that way. It's more integrative and inclusive. Yes. Well, um, have you, have you heard of the work of Tanya Harris? No. Speaking of cymatics, uh, Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A Harris, um, it's the architecture of sound mm. website, and she's she's gone into uh, uh, various cathedrals. I think in uh, Ireland or England, I think, and um, she's run these experiments measuring, recording the ambient sound of these structures, absent of any kind of you know music or or you know chatter and just the, the silence of the sound just recording and then distilling those the sound recordings down further and further till it's like an audible hum that she then plays to you know a bowl of water and then photographs the results and she's coming up with these cymatic patterns that look like snowflakes or that look like rose windows um so i'm sure that um I'm sure that we could go into any structure and, you know, conduct such an experiment and discover the, the, the um, ambient cymatic um, um, fingerprint of pretty much any structure. And that would be a fascinating experiment. Go into my kid's middle school made with steel studs down the street here and measure, you know, and see what we come up with mm. or go into, the, you know, a cathedral nearby or go into um go into a cave go into um you know in terms of you know actually dowsing for ley lines i wonder i wonder if these kind of things can actually be, be discerned um Absolutely. through such experimentation yeah no it, it's it's one thing to to see the the pattern in the water but then to consider that we are water beings and that's going on inside of us potentially when we're in these structures it, it brings a whole new light to it and yeah if, if only people uh could be shown that in a way that was uh not totally anti-authoritarian because that's a big issue with a lot of these subjects is people you know they don't expect a guy like you with your amount of school and training and work in architecture to come in with anachronistic views to the system because they've only been shown one way. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. when people do come to this with anachronistic views, they get, you know, silenced and, and pushed out of, of the market and, and asked to, you know, not participate because they're shaking up the system. But I don't know if we're going to be able to, if they're going to be able to pull that thing off for much longer, because it seems like we're we're waking up to these concepts on a massive level that's not happened before. You know, for worse or for better, the T word Tartaria has generated a lot of interest in this sort of mm-hmm. subject, and 
and whether or not you know there's another civilization that's responsible for these buildings it really doesn't matter the fact is is that we're all human beings and if they built it back then we should be able to build it now right i mean is that the in, intention yes. you, you hope to be able to bring these things back into uh fruition and, and show them show the examples of where they are still standing yeah no absolutely i mean I, I would love to go back to your question earlier i would love to participate in a project that that you know just scaled up a little bit maybe taking several of these structures and putting them together um in you know, some kind of, um, you know, resonant harmonic hole um, where you have parts parts to the hole and it's maybe even laid out in some kind of a, you know, crystalline type of um, plan. Maybe not at the city scale, but, you know, at, at the level of a complex would be, would be extraordinary opportunity. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this, this paradigm, this modern age of modernity that we're living in, I mean, it's, you know, I feel like we're kind of in the, in, in the, the end game of this whole project, this whole way of doing things. It's just seems like everywhere you turn, it's kind of, it's falling apart. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're in the search of, uh, for a new story, like a new, a new cosmology. Um, I mean, even science itself, it just seems like it's played itself out. You know, it's, it's just, you know, scientism is, you know, how a lot of people refer to it now. Um, and um, you know the idea, the idea that the Big Bang never happened—it's just um, where that you know, you know, they'll explain everything. Just grant them, you know, one free miracle, you know. So this this paradigm that we're suffering through right now is in its end game, I think. And so out of the out of you know the rubble of, of 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 the age that we are living through is is going to emerge something new and i think what is going to emerge is gonna it's not gonna look just like what you know it was 200 years ago and previous it's gonna look like something new but there's principles and there's ideas there's concepts um that are that are eternal and I think that they're there to be um, they're there to be discovered, and they're there to be um, applied to whatever new expression is coming. Right. So you mentioned in the the notes that you have an ayahuasca experience under your belt, maybe more. How much of that fed into this? You know. Mm new realization in this mission that you're on because i think uh i think the audience is is really keyed in to ayahuasca me i i don't know if i'll ever do it my girlfriend's mm -hmm. done it i've had many conversations with people who have done ayahuasca but uh but I, i'm curious where does this sort of uh fit in like when you had your ayahuasca experience was it clear to you that this is a part of what you're meant to do or, or did it get more personal than that? I mean, how, how, I mean, I've never experienced uh, a trip, so I really don't have like the, you know, context to ask mm -hmm. you from, but like, were you, were you more inspired afterwards to stick with this, so to speak? Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my ayahuasca path is, it's deeply personal and, and, um, 
when I first got into it, it was a result of um, a series of crises, you know, life crises, um, where, uh, you know, I just realized I needed to change things up. I needed to find a new way of being that didn't lead back to the same type of um, of uh, a personal crisis. And usually, <laughs> these are health crises wrapped around uh, renovating or building a house where I just throw myself at these projects uh, with abandon. And um, what I what I learned through the process of working with ayahuasca um, was that you know this is it's it's an old pattern for me that goes back to my childhood, growing up in an old house. Um, you know, seven kids in my family, uh, the old Irish Catholic, you know, East Coast tribe, and um, and I spent my childhood fixing up the house that kept falling down around us so uh it, it you know so that act of building and remodeling and renovating uh was you know both a therapy um a way for me to learn and develop skills but it was also very much wrapped up in like my own my own trauma you know my own um i guess trauma is the word yeah and so what I what I realized was, and I and again I went to ayahuasca after I injured myself for like the umpteenth time working working on a house remodel for my family. Where what I realized was that I was just playing out old patterns, and I was going to keep playing out those old patterns until I saw it and you know recognized it and uh, learned not to do that. And so for me, um, that's the role. Uh, that ayahuasca played it was it was able to um, open my eyes to that patterning and so it's it's i i wouldn't advocate anybody to do ayahuasca i mean it's it's profound it's like there was times where it was actually terrifying um and there was definitely times where i got into it and was thought why 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 am i doing this to myself this is it's exhausting at times it can be really frightening and um and then there's times where it's just like the most beautiful revelations came to me um but i saw the impact um the immediate impact and then the ongoing impact it was having on my life on how i conduct myself in the world how i carry myself the way i apply myself to my work, um, the way I am as a father and how I'm raising the kids. And, you know, and again, it's like, how, what kind of parent do you want to be? You know, do you want to be like, you know, still figuring out your childhood stuff while your kids are like becoming teenagers and you're just handing off your problems, unresolved issues to them for them to figure out someday, maybe, or, or, you know, here's an opportunity just to, face things squarely and learn the lessons that you need to learn to be a better person, to be a better, you know, father. And so, you know, so that's what I chose for myself. Um, and the deeper I got into it, and so now I've been doing it about four years. I've done a little over 50 ceremonies and, you know, I, I got really, really lucky getting into it. I just met the right people at the right time. 
Um, and I didn't have to travel too far. I didn't have to go to Peru or Mexico. Um, and so I was really fortunate. Um, and so basically, I, you know, I've had a, a mentor that I've been working with for the last couple of years, almost exclusively. And, um, you know, he's a dear friend and, 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 um, he's himself, he's, um, you know, a, a really committed practitioner who's working with Shipibo people, um, and, and, uh, very, very committed to keeping his medicine clean, we say, and, and, uh, um, he's gone through a couple of year long dietas. And so what that is, is when you enter into the space of working with the ayahuasca, and you exclude certain other things from your life for that period of the of the dieta, um, including um, res- certain restrictions around nutrition and intake, um, types of music you listen to, types of movies you watch, um, even the company you keep. And it's you know a very kind of a you know the path path of an an aesthetic aesthetic um, in some ways. And so he's doing all the heavy lifting. And so I'm, I've been able to, you know, benefit from, 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 you know, his level of commitment uh, to working with the plant medicine. Um, so again, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be in the position I've been in to work with it on that level and, and, and not having to travel too far. Um, but what it's open to me is, uh, an internal world that in many ways reflects all of these things that we're talking about externally. You know, I wish that there was a cathedral down the street where I can go, you know, I'm not religious anymore. I grew up Catholic, but you know, and so I did go to church growing up and I, but I do wish there was such a building, such a sacred structure that I could enter into and feel, you know, enriched in this way and like cleansed and, 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 and energetically healed and uplifted. And I think that's the role that these structures were playing in many regards. Uh, I don't have that, but I can enter into a space um, with this plant medicine where it's something very similar going on internally. The, 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 I, you know, the, the visionary space of it, that it, that it opens up often to me reflects like the inside of a cathedral, right? It's, it's, you know, very, um, very geometrical has, you know, all this to sort of sacred geometry. Um, they're singing, uh, the practitioner, the shaman is singing to you, uh, uh, uh his Icaros, and the Icaros are uh, working with the plant medicine and in uh, creating vibration and frequency that uh, the purpose of which is to, to, uh, to clean you, to clean your energy body. And so, you know, maybe up until like a few years ago, I would have considered a lot of this to be, you know, just a lot of woo. Um, but going by what I've experienced and what I've seen, um, uh, to me, it's, uh, it's, it's just no longer um, a question if, like, these inner realms exist. It's, um, 
it's what you know what do we what do we do with the knowledge that that our being is much more than meets the eye than the physical plane that there are other dimensions that we can access with caution right and potential peril if you're not careful right right or if you get you know into it um maybe with the wrong practitioner and the wrong you know setting or with the wrong intention and that's the other thing is 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 that um in the world of ayahuasca intention is 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 everything right. and then and then integration is everything else and so it's like the actual ceremony the space of the ceremony is a container you know it's a very sacred container you know there's but there's a beginning a middle and the end you enter into it with intention and that that's gonna determine much of what you experience um because you're setting your own vibration and you're meeting the you're meeting this powerful plant medicine which is like profoundly wise in ways that we can't even begin to discern because you know we don't have plant con we're not innately with plant consciousness but we can experience it through these mediums um so we set our intentions we go in the ceremony is held it's open the heat grows occur the cleansing process happens and then the ceremony closes and at the end of the ceremony you're like holy shit, what did i just see you know and, and and you just had this like download just sometimes it's just absolutely overwhelming uh amount of stuff that gets downloaded and it's like well, what do i do with this and then if you don't do anything with it then it's just going to be like a you know a dream you had that fades into the distance and um but through the practice of integration you, you can you can you can um uh um bring these things into your life in such a way that the lessons that you've learned don't have to be relearned because <laughs> sometimes it's painful to learn hard lessons you know i learned a lot of hard lessons like why do i keep creating chaos in order to just feel like i'm the guy that has to come and fix it you know well because i grew up in a house that was falling down and that's what i knew so i kept creating chaos as an adult and spilling over into how i'm like being as a father and so forth so those are some pretty pretty tough lessons to learn um so i had to unlearn that or learn how to conduct myself differently at this stage in my life and so the next time i go into ceremony i don't have to relearn that lesson because i've integrated absolutely yeah i i love the comparison to a cathedral and certain cathedrals are built in the proportions of a human body so i would yeah. be i would be excited to see what happens if somebody does ayahuasca in a cathedral or in a sacred space like that i mean what kind of profound experience could be had that's a good question because also cathedrals you know and churches and sacred buildings have also been used for not pure intent Mm, right right so i'd be i'd personally i'd be cautious about 
mm. being in a building that was maybe used for mm. by by various religions you know I, you know because again it's like the energetic imprint you know this you know it's all around us all the time it's just like our you know this spectrum of light that we're able to see is just a sliver so mm. i think there was a in manhattan there was like a a club that was built in St. Paul's Cathedral. Like it was a cathedral that had gone uh, defunct and was sold. And then these like young people who were in in Mm -hmm. a a music scene at the beginning, I forget which genre, but they took over this cathedral and they had all these parties there. And I think some uh, television executives were even involved uh, in kind of like poaching young people from this sort of group to recruit them to be a part of, you know, whatever entertainment mm. schemes they had but yeah I, i'd imagine there are a lot of drugs going on in there and, and it definitely had a conspiratorial sort of reputation i forget where i'm remembering that from my mind's thinking uh, saint elmo's fire but i don't think that's the same thing i think there's it's, it's something unrelated this might have been something i heard about on a comedy podcast comedians they got a, a bunch of they got a bunch uh-huh. of stories you know not all of them you could uh, follow up on but yeah that that the idea of doing a profound psychedelic like ayahuasca in a cathedral may be exciting at first but i appreciate you coaching it with that because you don't know what intentions have been built into that structure or placed into that structure throughout mm-hmm. its history, right? It might have been built with good intentions, but if somebody was doing some dark magic in there or maybe just the, the overall oppression energy, that'll yeah. that'll seep into your consciousness. That'll affect your experience yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, what if there's some crip under the vulture mm. that you're not aware of or... <laughs> The energy's there, right? Right, and there's, you know, so you know, in a in a ayahuasca ceremony, the first thing that the shaman is going to do is they're going to clean the space, right? They're going to clean the the ether around the ceremony itself. So I would feel the same way about like pyramids, you know. Um. They might be carrying some dark energies that you don't want to tangle up with. And again, it's, you know, uh, ayahuasca is one modality, you know, and there's there's a lot of ways to climb the mountain. And so maybe, maybe if you build a powerful structure that's doing that job, that's a modality in itself. And so you don't need to be, you know, tripping balls in church. Just <laughs> play the pipe organ and be right. still. Well, yeah, it seems like it's designed for that purpose. Well, when it comes to these old world structures, we've heard rumors of sound being a big component and even like buildings that aren't religious or, or oriented for, you know, sacred means having big pipe organs in them. And maybe these things served a sort of function beyond just being uh, musical instruments. Have you looked into that at all and, and looked into like the cathedral connection there? I mean, somewhat. The part about the pipe organ that blows my mind is that other than just the, 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 the exquisite beauty and the profound engineering that goes into them, into the older ones, is that some of the, some of the tones are not even audible. Right. So, 
what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. They're, they're in, in, you know, with the skilled organist, it isn't it interesting that, um, at least for me, like when I picture a pipe organ in church, it's like, what comes to mind are like old movies and old cartoons where it's some like, you know, demonic dude or vampire yeah, like or, a villain or somebody who's yeah, not some yeah. villainous <laughs> character that's like dun, 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 dun. right so like, what did they flip on us that's you know, the propaganda man yeah yes. why are they showing <laughs> us only one side where only evil creepy guys use pipe organs <laughs> there's mm-hmm. gotta be something yeah, yeah. i i can say you know growing up catholic every sunday we'd go to church that was the only part I enjoyed was the music because it, I don't know how, I don't think we had like a, a medieval pipe organ or anything like that, but it was fairly big piano. It was in a balcony in the back of the church. So it all, that sound echoed throughout the church and it, it was, it was quite an experience. I think I was a little bit uh, jaded at the time, you know, uh, didn't really appreciate what was going on there, but mm-hmm. I, it might've had an effect on me. No, I think so. And then, you know, that's the positive side of like having grown Catholic is like, I grew up with a moral code and Mm. even for, you know, when I considered myself an atheist for 20 years, I carried that code with me. And, 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 you know, that's when I developed into an architect during that period where I considered myself an atheist. But, um, you know, the idea of that houses could be more than, you know, just boxes, um, you know, that came from going to church and just looking up at these vaulted ceilings and like yourself, like just listening to the organ play. Um, so imagine, <laughs> imagine like you get to grow up, you know, participating in mass in some, you know, cathedral with this pipe organ with tens of thousands of tones to it, you know, it's stained glass rose window hovering above you it just must be a just such a profound way to um come into your own humanity Mm. now you mentioned uh tanya harris and i've had david elkington on the show before talking about the you know sacred sound that seems to be almost uh like it imprints itself on the architecture itself. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if maybe there are certain like stratas that would hold sound better, like this uh, cement, would that have been, because, you know, you got to imagine that this old world cement, once it Mm. solidifies, it's like one solid piece. It's like one giant Mm -hmm. megalithic stone uh, to Mm -hmm. some extent. And we've had, a conversation which I think you you mentioned listening to with Topher, where he talks about yes. how the old world uh, structures were built with polymers, geopolymers that you know they would pour into place, just like a cement, you know, a very advanced cement. Yes, yeah, you'd you'd have to imagine that uh, these st- structures hold the energy mm. of, from what's going on inside of them, right. You, you, you'd have to conclude that by now. Absolutely. And so it's the container and the contained, mm. right? And it's, 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 it's the eye and the eye. It's, it's, it's the, the, 
you know the greater consciousness and then your own individual consciousness or the or the this, you know the spirit and the soul i think there's this like this constant dialectic between between um you know the the the, the mind of the user and, and 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 then you know if we could extrapolate to the mind of the um of 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 our container of our environment Absolutely. Yeah, it, it it's something that has been increasingly fascinating for me going out and looking for these stone structures out in the woods and and seeing where we could uh where we can connect the dots because it's almost like that you know, these individual buildings are connected to each other in a larger energy relationship where maybe they're passing energy through one another just like those cities are all on the same ley line yeah yeah well that gets right into you know what you know tesla mm. was doing it seems um with his tesla towers and worry questions there's this cat you know this dude parker edmondson that sounds familiar but no i don't know much about him Tell me about Check him it. out on YouTube, man. He posts, he puts up these like three minute yes, videos. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think I, I, Andreas Zertis, uh, told me about him. Um, yeah. And he's, he's actually building these yeah. things and he's just wrapping a bunch of wire that he, it seems like he found and stripped down to the copper and just wrapped it up around a bunch of old two by fours that he put up in his backyard and he's sending electrical signals from his house to his friend's house however many miles away right i mean he's doing the calculations this guy is a genius yeah he um, he's definitely a savant i saw some of his backyard devices he's got like this big turbine that spins and generates electricity and then transmits it it throughout this network yeah so i mean if he's doing that in his backyard Imagine what these old buildings were doing. If the, if it really has all this kind of old world tech that we're talking about, that's you know connecting it somehow to etheric energies, and you place several of these structures along these ley lines, you know one can only imagine the types of you know uh, transmission and reception that was going on between them. Mm, right. Right. And this is the integrated approach that we need. You know, for too long, we've compartmentalized everything to where architects were only architects. They didn't think about the health of the people living inside of the building. I mean, maybe if we look further back, there was a time when they did that. But it seems at least in the past 100, 200 years, there's become, you know, this compartmentalization of things mm -hmm. where where it's it's not holistic. It, it, it's not accounting for the whole so it's really encouraging to to meet someone like yourself who is spreading this and, and demonstrating it and, and has the career that backs it up too. Because, you, you know, this isn't like a hobby of yours. This is something that you do professionally. You're a designer. You've gone to school for architecture. And people can even uh, hit you up and get a design for you from you, right? Dreamdesignbuild.org is, is one of your websites, correct? That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk to anybody about, um, design projects. Um, you know, and, and, and just a, a, a final note to what you're saying there is, 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 yeah, architects for, for too long have, um, you know, just 
kind of followed with the program. And maybe, you know, I'm, I've learned to follow my intuition, you know, over the years. And, and I think that the profession as such didn't resonate with me. And every time I've, you know, worked with this or that architect, um, even working on schools, um, it just, there's something that just pushed me away. And so I gravitated towards what I'm doing now, um, just by following my intuition. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's what's uh, going to be needed moving forward to really, um, to, to create a new story for ourselves and to, to build a new, um, a new cosmology and, 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 and then the sky's the limit. It's incredibly exciting for me to be, you know, wearing the hat that I'm wearing now because, you know, I get to build cool houses and just, you know, design round structures for, for amazing people. Um, but where it goes, I have no idea. I am just excited about the prospects and, um, yeah, if anybody is interested in talking shop, you know, they can find me through that website, dreamdesignbuild.org. Um, I also just launched a, um, a, a personal, um, uh, website it's just gotten started but it's for my you know more personal projects like just backyard scrap wood chicken coop that i built in a tiny house that i built in my driveway things that don't make it to my professional website but other interests and uh you know i'll be hopefully writing about some of these ideas that uh you know are just kind of percolating right now and things we've been talking about and uh so that is at uh, matthew r smith dot art mm. yes and those links will be in the description for everybody but yeah i'm excited to see you catalog more of these old world concepts you know the cement to the red bricks and and taking your professional eye to these things that are are very becoming very popular online you know under maybe uh different sort of uh names uh, the T word. I like that. I think, I think old world is more appropriate and it's where I've been fascinated for my whole life. You know, what, what happened in the past? It's one of the big reasons why, you know, I'm very grateful to have grandparents that are still alive because I can go and ask them. And, you know, some of my, two of my grandparents uh, are a little younger than the other two grandparents. So it's interesting to see there, you know, the difference in perspective, uh, generationally, just for you know from from 70 year old to 90 year old right it's totally different and uh wow you're lucky that you have both sets of grandparents around yeah my my pepe passed away but you know i was oh, i was okay. with him for long enough to to really you know ha mm -hmm. you know he, he my grandparents lived next like block over so i grew up with them in my life uh, consistently so yeah it, it's always been an interest of mine to go back and, and look and, and, and see what happened in history. And it seems like there's a resurgence of that interest. And, and hopefully that'll lead to more uh, data that we can all look through and, and come to our own conclusions. Cause that's, that's what it is. You know, we've got a lot of data points and we've been told this one narrative and these data points don't fit into that narrative. So it's about time we, we start to, to get rid of these narratives and start just uh, figuring out what the truth is, right? Yeah, that's it. And, I, you know, I think that, you know, we're feeling our way forward. Um, mm. You know, I don't have any big answers. I have a lot of, I think I have a lot of good questions, mm. you know, and again, following my intuition and, and, and what feels true. Um, do you, you know, plan on, 
do you plan on, you said you planned on writing some stuff. Do you plan on making a podcast or any, like a YouTube channel to, to contain some of these ideas? Obviously you want to get on more podcasts and I'd be happy to, to help you do that. And anyone listening who has a podcast, don't hesitate, get in touch with, with Matt, especially if you've listened this far. Um, well, thank you, Mark. Um, yeah. You know, I, I love the opportunity to talk to people about this. I probably don't have the bandwidth to, be a podcaster. Um, I have a lot of respect for what you're doing. I know it's a full-time job. And uh, yeah, so piggybacking on the good work that you and others are doing, um, that would be great. And again, it's, you know, I'm not pitching a book. I don't have things figured out. You know, I was, I was looking into my research up until the time we talked and it's just ideas are coming. You know, ideas are coming um, and in some big ones and like this idea of a piezoelectric generator. It's like, well, that it just you know, certain ideas are clicking and fitting into a bigger, you know, uh, picture that's starting to crystallize. So I'm just excited to be part of the conversation at this point. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. It is exciting. And I'm excited to uh, to add another friend to the to the group here i mean thank you matt for for joining me here and sharing your unique insights with us and and yeah it's been a a, a true blast to 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 the past so to speak <laughs> you know getting into all these ideas and i look forward to having you back on again my throat i don't know if you noticed uh, i'm a little i'm a little scratchy today not feeling uh tip-top shape but i'm on the uh the edge curve of that. So I'm, I'm feeling better than I did yesterday. So yeah, here, the seasons to, are changing. Yeah. Here's to, here's to our continued health and, uh, and Matt, thank you brother for joining me here. Uh, like I said, all your links are in the description folks, please follow up with him. And especially if you'd like a uh, design, you know, if you want to maybe find a new place to live, think about hitting Matt up and see what you guys could do together. But uh, until next time, Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. This podcast is sponsored by The Hit Kit, the number one way to store whatever you got to smoke, whether it's a joint, a blunt, like me, whatever you're doing. You get The Hit Kit, it keeps you lighter, keeps everything you need safe wherever you're going. Maybe you're going for a hike, maybe you're going to a music festival. Whatever it is, you need a hit kit. Never get picked again. Everybody will have uh, their own hit kit, hopefully. No one will pick you, but who's going to pick you if you're lighter? Is in this sweet carrying case. They're not going to pick you. They're going to behold the amazing artwork. Go to hitkit.us and see what I'm talking about. Support our sponsors and you support the show. It's a value for value podcast. Garrett's a cool guy. He makes hit kits himself. He's not shipping these things from China. He's making them in his basement. Okay? Thank you for supporting the show. Alright, and that is our episode with Matthew Smith. I originally got in touch with Matthew through the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. He reached out to me, he booked some time, we spoke, and uh, yeah, it was a great conversation and led to this conversation here before you. So, hey, 
It's not a guarantee, but if you sign up for the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue, maybe you'll end up on the show. Again, not a guarantee. We've got a lot of incredible guests in the lineup, so stay tuned. This month of November is going to be sweet. Maybe we'll plan something for Thanksgiving. Do another Thanksgiving turkey swap episode with some of the podcast friends. Maybe not the same podcast friends that I did it with last Thanksgiving for uh, strange reasons. Uh, People, you know, you meet a lot of people. you, You don't know people until they show their true colors. But anyways, I think we'll have a really awesome Thanksgiving swap with some of the podcast friends this thanksgiving so look forward to that a bunch of great episodes coming out big thank you to matthew smith for joining me i'm not certain if matthew is planning on doing a podcast or a video series almost certain he said he was thinking about doing that i don't think he has a channel yet but when he has a channel we will most likely see word of it at matthewrsmith.art or dreamdesignbuild.org or on his Instagram at yurtdesigns, Y-U-R-T designs. So support our guests. Let them know that you loved their appearance on the show. That goes for all the guests. If you like a guest, feel free to follow up with them and say, hey, I really liked when you were on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast helps me continue to book excellent guests for future excellent episodes. One example of this is our friend Howdy Mikowski, who reached out and asked to join me on the show again, which is very cool. So, and you can see Howdy on the Higher Side Chats, actually. He was just recently on there, so that's pretty cool. I imagine he probably reached out to Greg in a similar way. So, Howdy will be on the show very soon. Who else do we got? I'll give one. I'll give one more away. Oh, uh, Dave Zed and I will be doing a show together soon. Shout out to Dave. He's doing a lot of interesting stuff lately. I am very curious. I have some questions for him. Maybe we'll get him on Illuminati Confirmed. Maybe we'll do a, a Dave Zed Illuminati Confirmed episode. So, uh, speaking of that show, I just put out a bonus Patreon episode available for the Patreon supporters. We're down to 98, so there's still time for someone to be the 100th patron. Sign up today and become the 100th patron. You get a special gift, you get a sticker in the mail. Uh, the past two winners of the 100th patron, they didn't even respond to the message. So if you signed up for your Patreon, for the Patreon in the past month or so, since September, hit me up. Check your messages on Patreon. See if you were one of the 100th patrons to sign up. It fluctuates, so it seems like multiple people will be the 100th patron until we get past that milestone. So sign up on the Patreon. Get a free sticker when you do sign up. And uh, yeah, that's all for today. We got a really great episode coming out this Wednesday. If you're listening to this into the way, way future, uh, in 
enjoy the next episode that you listen to. Maybe it'll be Marha West, Maria West, uh, or Henry Hablock. As for me, got myself backwoods here. Smoke and sit at my computer and think. Maybe get some more podcast stuff done. Until next time, folks. Have a great moment wherever you are in the now. Pull up professionals, but I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw a bomber from guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you could stick with your old ways. But eat the rich and drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. Keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy The morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for our military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, riding ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up can. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy Anything out, so...